Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. And this is a moment where like housing affordability is just a the issue that crosses the the aisle in terms of you know political spectrum, class, race, like everybody is feeling crunched. Um, and it is it's very conspicuous that the elected leaders in our city have have done really nothing to support it. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we check in with No Olympics LA organizer Anne Orchier about the latest in their organizing efforts and a survey they just took about the popularity or lack thereof of the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. It's a deep conversation. We also touch on parallels with Brazil and their recent election of proto-fascist Bolsonaro and what that election portends for the Olympics and for the United States. I also have some choice words about solidarity in difficult times and an unprecedented four Just Stand Up Awards headed up by the students and players and community surrounding the University of Maryland. But first, let's go to Anne Orchier. Anne Orchier, how are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm doing well. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Thanks for joining us at this early hour on the left coast. Appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Always happy to, to get up early and, um, and talk No Olympics. Well, let's jump right in then. First and foremost, um, No Olympics LA released these survey results about the popularity or lack thereof of the games. Can you share with our audience what you found out? Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, in terms of, you know, top line findings, uh, as they as they say in the biz, uh, you know, we found that, you know, contrary to what the the bid committee and mayor and city council and various other uh, Olympic boosters have been, you know, claiming as fact for a long time, uh, there really is not widespread support or a popular mandate for hosting the games in LA. Uh, and specifically we found, uh, we, we surveyed uh, a thousand people across the state of California. It was a random sample through survey monkeys audience panel. Uh, and we asked them how supportive or opposed they were to hosting the, uh, summer Olympic games in 2028 in Los Angeles. We found that 47% of people across California opposed hosting the games, 45% within uh, the city of Los Angeles itself opposed, and then only 26% supported uh, statewide and 32% supported within LA. Uh, and then about a quarter in both categories were neutral. So not quite a picture of you know people clamoring to host the games that, that folks have been you know, portraying. And how does that um, compare or contrast with what the LA twenty twenty eight organizers and the committee that the kind of uh, propaganda they've been putting out? 
they had for a long time and and one of the the sort of you know main reasons we conducted this survey is they had been using uh this one figure this one polling figure of 88 percent to sort of claim that you know they had conclusively determined they they had sort of done their due diligence in terms of uh gauging public opinion on the games and support was so overwhelming uh and from the beginning you know 88 percent always sort of struck a flag to us because those are those are kind of um you know what we've referred to as like dictator numbers mm-hmm. you know when you see an election that someone got 99% of the vote it's like it's hard to get that many people to agree on anything and you know and the way that they portrayed it and the media picked up that figure was also really troubling in that they would they would sort of couch it as one of many figures as sort of the highest of you know they would say like polls show that as many as 88% of people support this. And for a long time, it was the only surveying that had been done. Uh, And so, you know, we feel very strongly, and I personally feel very strongly, my professional background is in in market research, um, that one one poll uh, is not nearly enough to conclusively, you know, demonstrate anything. And we would, you know, say the same about our survey. We don't think that it conclusively, you know, demonstrates, uh, you know, that it doesn't present these figures that I mentioned earlier as fact. But what it does demonstrate is that, you know, you you can't look at what the bid committee is saying as conclusive. This introduces potential suggestive new evidence um, that would indicate that we need to keep talking about this, that we can't look at that one eighty eight percent figure and say, oh, everyone wants this. We know this to be scientific fact, which is kind of how they've been framing it. And then and then we don't, you know, they've mainly been using it as a justification for saying we don't need to talk about this anymore. We don't need to do any more community outreach. We don't need to have comment at City Hall because we know for a fact that 88% of people want this. I have a follow-up question for you, but first, is, was that a rooster in the background? Oh, it is. Can you hear that? Was that like an actual rooster or? It's an actual rooster. Oh, uh, you're you're in Los Angeles County, correct? I am in Los Angeles County. Can you explain the rooster for our audience? <laughs> um, sure. Um, uh, a number of my neighbors have uh have roosters as as pets, roosters and chickens. Um, and uh, it's about seven twenty-two a.m. and mm. now's the time when they crow. How does that work for you when you want to sleep in? Um, I'm a really heavy sleeper, so it's fine. It honestly bothers me more at night. There's a, a couple of roosters since, as you mentioned, it's Los Angeles. Um, uh, there's a, you know, it's there's various issues with like light quality. They're not on the most regular schedule, so sometimes they crow at like one a.m. and that gets a little trickier for me. Wow, wow! Thanks for sharing. I just, <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't. Uh... And hallucinating in any way and just to be clear they're pets not food in terms of your neighbors oh i don't know they might be food okay yeah just just curious what what the power dynamic was with the roosters yeah some of them there's a bunch of them uh for a while there was a a sort of lot and they there was a some of them had set up camp on a lot so they were just kind of like doing their own thing for a while wow okay so back to the, <laughs> back um, to the survey. Uh, 
to the survey. Um, as someone who's also done grassroots work around Olympic organizing, um, I know it's not scientific, but I think you'd have a sense if 88% actually did support the games just by going out and talking to people. Mm-hmm. What has been your grassroots experience when speaking to people about the games? Our grassroots experience um, in having these conversations, having just sort of like direct one-on-one conversations with people is that uh, most people lack basic understanding of the games. Um, most people had no idea that the games were happening, um, didn't know what stage they were at. Uh, people who were sort of initially excited or like tentatively supportive are not supportive when they, they learn about some of the potential impacts that the games can have, um, particularly around displacement. Basically, a lot of the same things that were validated by our our survey findings as well. Um, So in sort of like short summary, our conversations found that people either outright opposed the games, didn't give a shit about them, just had like it wasn't on their radar at all. um, And they like had no interest in really like thinking that far ahead. Uh, or there was sort of like weak and conditional support that went away as soon as they learned like one or two basic facts about how the bid was set up. Mm. I'd be curious what the media response was to your survey results, the people parroting that 88% number. Were you able to get it picked up anywhere? We were able to get picked up. The LA Times picked us up. And then we had, um, honestly, we had, I think, more luck getting media coverage nationally than we did locally. Um the the folks behind the bid, uh, you know, they're some pretty powerful institutions. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, it was a, honestly, it was a really interesting experience navigating the, the media um, coverage of this. Like, it also, to me, uh, you know, I've learned a lot through um, Johnny, my organizing partner and, and co-chair of No Olympics, uh, He's a, a journalist by background, um, and also his partner Molly Lambert, who's who's one of my best friends. Or you know, so they understand kind of like all of the the ins and outs of how media works, how things get picked up, how they get covered. And I I feel like I've in the last you know couple of years working with them, I've I've learned like a lifetime <laughs> of knowledge about uh, how all this plays out. And um, you know, I was I was remarking to Johnny when this was coming out, we were releasing these and talking to people, just the types of questions that people had signaled to me that there, there wasn't really like innate understanding of how survey methodology works. Um, there, yeah, there just like, wasn't a really strong understanding of, of how quantitative research and surveying and polling worked. And he was pointing out, he was like, yeah, a lot of that is just because everything is so tight and the people who we're talking to like don't have background in this and there isn't someone on staff who they can ask. Um, and so that was, that was like an interesting challenge too. I think, uh, for people to figure out, for people to figure out how to report on our survey because it wasn't, it wasn't coming from sort of like a name brand entity like LMU like which is where the the bid committee and now organizing committee where they ran their poll and survey through. Um, I think 
so I think there, when there's sort of like a name attached to it and there's money attached to it, there's a little bit more inherent trust. Um, and you know, I think, I think we had to do like a certain amount of, um, of like educating in certain respects about like, what is the difference between their, you know, their research and our research? Like how, you know, how does ours work? Like what, what does it mean that we paid for ours and they paid for theirs? Like how, you know, how are those things the same? How are they different? Um, and yeah, so I think the the actual like coverage we got of people who wrote about it was was great. Um, I, I was really happy with it. Uh, we had some great write ups, you know, in the Nation, obviously, uh, and Pacific Standard. Um, the LA Times piece was was something that was really important to us, uh, but it didn't. I think uh, I think too honestly, and like this is something we've talked a lot about, like in the last couple years in terms of political polling. Um, I think it's hard to gauge like what, <laughs> what does that mean? You know, like, and, and that's something that we wanted to pick up a little bit with our survey as well. Like we're not interested. We don't want the end results of this to be just sort of like a, a battle of the survey methodologies. Um, and like, you know, battle of the data sets, like the, the end goal isn't for like Nate Silver to jump in and like to our data set and, you know, demonstrate something conclusively or, or pull something out of his sleeve. It's, it's really to promote more dialogue and conversations about these games, like with people. Mm. Now, when, when you, when you have these dialogue and conversations, I know, you know, LA County is a, you know, high turnover place with a dramatically different population than 30 years ago, but is there a hangover or memory from the 84 Olympics? And what what kind of hangover do you get? What kind of institutional or popular memory is there? Yeah, that's another, like, I think, thing that we've been up against. And that's that's something that came up. I, I think there's a real split around 84. Um, one of the things that was really fascinating to me about uh, our survey is that we had an open response question in addition to these, you know, quantitative questions. Um, so we could get a little bit more of an in-depth sense of like why people were answering certain ways or like how, how their thinking was informed. Um, and we got a number of responses about people just being like, you know, Oh, the 84 games were great. Um, that makes sense to me in the context of a, a survey, which no matter how, like what your methodology is for any survey, the respondents are always going to skew whiter and wealthier. Um, that's just, that's kind of how like our existing tools are set up. Ooh, sorry. That's my, uh, my alarm. Um, and so, so that makes sense. But in terms of our, like the conversations we have with people, you know, when we have gone out into communities and talked to people, people who, who lived in, uh, like South central and East LA in 1984, who lived around there, um, have vastly different memories of the 84 games than the ones that the, the sort of, um, basically than the ruling class have than like the folks who are on the organizing committee that the folks who are on city government, like when we went and spoke to different locals of the tenants union, um, yeah, people immediately were just like, Oh yeah, the 84 Olympics meant that everyone went to jail. Wow. That's kind of, yeah. So, dip and, and in the open response, uh, I think people are getting on a broader level. Like there were a lot of, 
responses to that, the open question, which was phrased as, um, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was basically like, how do you think hosting the Olympics will impact LA? And a lot of responses indicated that people really clearly understand, even if, um, you know, they, a lot of people saw 84 as a success, they sort of recognize that split of, well, the games benefit some people, but they really hurt other people. Now, I think that one of the uh, pushes uh, that you've taken up and that needs to be taken up is the idea of having a referendum about the Olympics. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's something that we've been talking about. I think um, that's something we're, we're having a lot of conversations uh, and been having, have uh, have been having conversations like in the last few months and year about, you know, how do we shape this campaign moving forward? It's been really interesting to think about in light of what's happening in Calgary and what happened in Stockholm, um, LA without going like, you know, too in depth into our sort of like our weird voting system here is there's a, there's a lot that needs to be done to reform how we vote in LA. Um, we vote, frequently and at weird intervals. Um, I I think, you know, there's a move in the next few years, uh, that's like already been voted on to consolidate the elections. Um, but basically long story short, like LA has really low voter turnout historically. So, uh, I, I think like a referendum of some kind is, is something that we we've been thinking about and wanting to build towards. Uh, and then the question is just like, how, you know, how does that fit into other things that are happening on the electoral landscape in LA? Wow. And you mentioned, um, Calgary and Stockholm for my audience. That's um, unaware. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Um, actually, so, so Stockholm, um, Stockholm city government overturned an Olymp, like rejected an Olympic bid. Um, and then Calgary has been deep in the throes. I don't even, I was, I had a, a crazy day at work yesterday. So I haven't even caught up on all the updates that, that happened yesterday around the, the Calgary referendum. But, um, that yeah, Calgary has been preparing to, to vote essentially on, uh, on the, the bid for 2026, uh, around specifically like the, the taxpayer guarantee and budget issues. Mm. So, wow. So th- th- there's so much on the international landscape that informs this discussion. Um, before I get to that, though, I, I, so it's 10 years to 2028. I mean, you have to have a long-term perspective on this, of course. Do you have a timeline in terms of next steps, what you hope to do and when? Yeah, definitely. So we had a retreat. Um, we had a, like a retreat with a number of our coalition partners and core members and some new members. Uh, that was really wonderful about a month ago to, to talk about this. And, um, I mean, like, it's of, like in the woods? <laughs> it wasn't in the woods. It was, uh, it was in downtown LA. Oh. Um, at our, we were hosted by our partners at, uh, the Los Angeles community action network. They have a really great space. Um, like right on Skid Row on Sixth Street, and uh, it's yeah they have a nice conference room and then a rooftop garden, and so we got to take breaks outside. Yes, that's my kind of uh, retreat. Keep it in the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they have like work, running water, working toilets, all that. Um, and yeah, we sort of we the two areas that we're focusing on for the next year um, are really around uh, like shaping certain material outcomes. Uh, and so looking at 
you know, one of the things that's been a little bit shocking even to us, you mentioned that the games are 10 years out. And so we had been predicting like, oh, at a certain point in time, you know, the games are going to be really, they're going to be like held up as a justification for uh, certain types of displacement, criminalization, all of that. Um, and we're, we started seeing it happen right away, basically. Like as soon as the bid was awarded, uh, like within a few months, um, you know, there were, there was a motion within city council to, uh, to, to basically like tear down a number of rent stabilized buildings, um, to make way for a luxury development that included hotels. Uh, and the rationale was that we're facing a, a shortage, a hotel shortage crisis for the 2028 Olympics. Um, so that we're already seeing, you know, our, our city leaders use the Olympics as a, yeah, rationale and justification for, um, for displacing people from their homes, um, and particularly like low income families of color, uh, in neighborhood. This was in a right around like USC, um, around the Coliseum. And we also have been hearing and seeing, uh, police officers use who, who do like in, encampment sweeps, which are incredibly inhumane and brutal and have been found like numerous times to be against, you know, basic like civil rights, uh, uh, laws, um, using the 2028 Olympics as a justification for, for why the streets need to get cleaned up more aggressively because they're preparing, like they, they have that in their heads that like they're, they're doing aggressive street cleanup for the 2028 Olympics. Um, so we're seeing like just initially, like right out the gate, that's happening. So one of the things we're focusing on in the next year is like really ramping up our efforts to address that. Um, you know, how can we, how can we work with all of our partners to, to make that something that the city can't do for the next 10 years, essentially to make it not viable for them. Cause we, we know that that's one of the reasons that cities want to host the Olympics. It's because of, of what they get to do in the lead up to them. It's because they have this sort of like great, uh, you know, um, like state of exception type excuse to, to create the city that they want to create, which is cleansed of, um, of, you know, poor people of color and, uh, and like run by developers. And so we want to take that shield away from them essentially, um, and, and call it out and like directly intervene. Um, so that's one thing. And then, the other, another area of focus is really just around like building awareness and sort of, and continuing to have these dialogues that we recognize were not, uh, even though the bid committee says they did community outreach and had dialogues, we know that that is not true for a number of reasons. And so, yeah, building awareness, we, in the last year, we just, um, we've had a lot of like opportunities to collaborate, uh, and like work with our various coalition partners to have events throughout the city and do things that where we can really like sit down and talk to people. We had our, um, I think this was after the the last time that we were on your podcast, but we had a, a big public forum, um, in August of last year, which we invited the bid committee in May or two. That was kind of initially how it was pitched as, is we never got to talk to them directly. Um, and they basically, they begged us off and said they were like looking at their calendars right until the last minute. And then 
said they couldn't come. Um, the mayor was very busy. He had a diversity in Hollywood event that night. Part of his duties as mayor, you know, to, to shake hands with the, the Harvey Weinsteins. And um, yeah, so uh, so we had this forum and yeah, got to, you know, it was wonderful, like really packed house. We had representatives from almost all of our coalition partners talking about the impact of the Olympics on, you know, policing, gentrification, displacement, all of that. Uh, and so we're looking to do do more things like that. We had a great uh, event this past March, um, also with our, our partners at LA Can, um, that where we combined, they have uh, they have they had a project they were working on called the Ride for Justice, where basically, uh, you know, the city, the, the mayor and the city implemented this plan um, to make LA more bike friendly. Uh, which is great, but they very, uh, <laughs> very conspicuously left out the area like around and including Skid Row in the plan to include bike lanes, um, which is one of the like highest fatality bike fatality areas in LA. So we had, uh, so we we partnered with them on one of their rides for justice, where we basically rode around downtown and stopped at various points, um, specifically related to you know, looking at how different sports centers have gentrified LA. Uh, so like looking at the Staples Center and a couple of other spots, um, you know, the Staples Center was like another place where initially a lot of people got displaced and where criminalization increased. And, you know, so like looking ahead to the Olympics, what is this going to mean for the community that's there now? And then at the end of the ride, we came back and we presented uh, a series of short documentary films that were made by favela residents in uh, in Rio who were displaced around the Olympics. Um, and it was also right around the time that Marielle Franco was assassinated. So it's a tribute to her. Uh, yeah. So just building awareness and continuing to build these connections uh, within L.A. and around the world. Yeah, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the last week speaking to people I met in Brazil when I was down there for the World Cup and the Olympics to try to understand if there was a, a role that was played at all by the just the, the incredible boondoggles that were the World Cup and the Olympics and the election yeah. of Bolsonaro, the proto-fascist who's about to assume power in Brazil. Is that something you're discussing in LA, the Brazil situation? And what parallels do you see in terms of mega events leading to this kind of uh, mass uh, backlash, if you were? Yeah. Huge oh, man. Sections Absolutely. Of the population? It's, it's really scary. I mean, one of the themes of that event and something that we've been emphasizing in general. So even before this, this election happened is, you know, we get the narrative a lot, um, from the media. I, I had one of the journalists I talked to, uh, during, you know, I, I got a little bit salty with, I try not to do this normally, but, but got a little bit salty with one of the journalists I was talking to with the survey results, you know, this, this line about like, LA is not Rio. Like this is, it's totally different. There's this, there's this layer of denial, um, about the, the parallels between our cities, but it's so it's, I mean, it's, it feels incredibly apparent to me, um, looking at how the games played out there, how they're poised to play out here, how they're already playing out, um, in terms of, yeah, I mean, it seems like a pretty, 
straightforward sequence of, you know, you hand over the city to these mega wealthy developers and neoliberal politicians um, and uh, who who basically like create a foundation of a really strong militarized uh, federalized, like like very highly like connected to the federal government police force um, and income inequality exacerbates and it feels sort of like a a sort of wider scale version of of like the connection that you know you were one of the people to initially make between what happened in the 84 games in LA and then the 92 uprising it's like you pair you pair like this incredible uh like segregation oppress oppression in an inequality um with policing and it's just like things explode basically uh and so looking at what's happening, there's also, we've, we've done a lot. We have a video about the connections between the Olympics and fascism. Um, you know, we, uh, we just finished and, and are in the process of, uh, releasing every week, a podcast series that we did with our partners at ground game. Um, and we have, we have an episode, uh, talking about the connections historically and presently between the Olympics and fascism. Um, we, we also have an episode where we, uh, I, I sat down with, um, Robin from the no Boston movement and Carrie Ann, uh, from Rio. And we talked about all of the parallels between our cities. So yeah, there's so much happening here in terms of, you know, also one of the things like that's similar here in terms of Rio is we're getting the world cup and the Olympics very close together. So there's this additional bolstered move to, uh, to, to ramp up security and militarization. I think that just, that gives sort of like extra ammo and leeway. Uh, yeah, I think it's, and, and we see even, we have our own proto fascist in office and we see what that looks like in terms of, uh, you know, even again, before the elections in Brazil, one of the things that we've been flagging is in LA, uh, you know, the Olympics, uh, are classified as a national special security event. Um, which means that for the duration of the Olympics and the Paralympics, there there's going to be what's referred to as a unified command. Um, our, this one in particular uh, will be the acronym is is uh, COPS, C O P P S C C. I think is the full one, but it like it pronounces COPS, which is terrifying. Uh, and that will be overseen by the Department of Homeland Security, which is the massive, uh, like hideous, you know, post 9-11 behemoth that includes ICE. So and, and we know that our mayor has been working closely with the Trump administration to ensure that both that and the um, the plans for expanding public transit go smoothly. That requires a lot of federal cooperation. Um, so we know that these games are basically are basically like a strong link between our local city government and the current administration uh, and and rationale for them to like cooperate with each other um, and work together very closely and that that you know all that presents a path to like you know how do you like how do you embolden fascists basically um, and in the case of a lot of nominally progressive city leaders including both elected officials and then you know, just sort of like general ruling class people, the, uh, the profit motive and in incentive to make a lot of money that the Olympics presents, I think overrides, um, 
any any actual compunctions they would have from from collaborating with um with folks who are like uh like evil white nationalists uh that's and that that does not pretend well for you know what the next few years in LA and the the next 10 years in LA and in this country look like see I don't know if there are parallels in this regard but one of the phenomena in Brazil was just that they they decided to host the World Cup and the Olympics in a very short-sighted fashion because the economy was exploding in size and uh, money was pouring in and the Workers' Party, the PT, saw this as a way to elevate Brazil to some sort of first tier of nations. And then the the bottom of the economy started to fall out around the World Cup and then was in crisis by the time of the Olympics, which just yeah. led to uh, tons of deficit spending, lack of funds for schools and infrastructure, lack of um, corruption, and it alienated a lot of the the base of the poor who otherwise would support the PT and there wasn't really a left to pull them in and so some of those folks stayed at home some of those folks voted for Bolsonaro out of disgust with the current setup which is just a tragedy but this is um I don't know if you see parallels in that narrative with what could happen in LA yeah no I, I I definitely do I think like uh there's a lot of um, disenchantment already with the sort of like Democratic Party establishment in LA. Um, and this is something I think it bears mentioning. So right now we're, we're three days out from a, a big election, right? Um, and one of the biggest ballots on, or yeah, the, the biggest measures on the California ballot is Proposition 10, which would legalize rent control. Um, and this is a moment where like housing affordability is just, uh, it's probably like, you know, the issue that crosses the, the aisle in terms of, you know, political spectrum, class, race, like everybody is feeling crunched. Um, and it is, it's very conspicuous that the elected leaders in our city have, have done really nothing to support it. Um, and I, I think, you know, there's, there are some clear lines being drawn. It's a, you know, uh, it's a very, it's a very tricky, difficult situation. Um, because I think, you know, there's this, and I, I think this is happening around the country. Like, I don't think LA is unique in this regard, uh, necessarily, but there's this push for, you know, the blue wave, um, on Tuesday, but then at the same time, like people care about these, these real like material issues that impact their life. And, and here there are very few signs that like that is being addressed, um, by the people that were being asked to vote for. Uh, and yeah, I guess maybe what makes LA different is like LA, we already have, we've, we've had like a democratic party controlled, every single branch and level of like local municipal state government. Um, so there isn't this, there isn't this idea of like, Oh, well, if, if we just get, you know, if we just support this one party, then, um, then things will be okay. I think there's already a sort of level of disenchantment with the democratic party that, that maybe, um, came out more nationally in the last election. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think if things continue, in this fashion, if, if like, if displacement continues to run rampant, if, if homelessness continues to 
you know, be incredibly, uh, you know, unmanageable and like not addressed as, as quickly, um, I want to say aggressively, but they are addressing it aggressively in the form of criminalization, um, addressed aggressively in terms of like actually looking at root causes and keeping people in their homes and, and providing homes for people. Um, then yeah, like I, I, in terms of like what openings that provides within an electoral landscape for people to, to shift their allegiances or to create vacuums, I think that's, yeah, that's very possible. Mm. Well, this is such important work you're doing, and thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Um, we, we, we always ask folks, oh, first of all, is there anything else you'd like to cover before I... Really quickly, I wanted to mention, yes. too, like, there's um, there's an impending uh, UTLA, which is the Public Schools Teachers Union. Um, there's an impending strike that's happening. Um and that's like another thing too, in terms of like, just cause you mentioned in Rio, like the public sector, like our, our public schools are already, uh, like really massively, uh, like underfunded. And, um, basically I, I don't know, I forget what the right word for it is, but they're, the number of students are decreasing. And a reason for that, that's connected to Prop 10, because a, a big reason for that is that the families that send their kids to public schools in LA are being uh, like rapidly displaced from where they live. And so, um, and like leaving Los Angeles. And so as a result, that's impacting the teachers and they're going on strike. And, um, that's something too, that was like very notable to us. The LA 84 foundation recently held a summit, um, a very like (laughs) at a Marriott hotel I'll mention. So they, they crossed a picket line, um, and, and had a summit that was ostensibly dedicated to social justice, um, but where they didn't talk about things like rent control, they didn't talk about the teacher strike. And just as a reminder, you know, the whole, the the pitch for the 2028 games is that it's going to be good for LA because it's going to bring more youth sports to LA. Um, and it just, it felt increasingly hollow to, to hear about that at a time when our, you know, the, the people who, you know, basically make our public schools in LA run are going on strike because conditions are so terrible and, and like children and their families are just being rapidly like displaced outside the city and pushed into homelessness. And and they're saying like, you know, Oh, but the 20 in 10 years, we'll have more youth sports. Um, that's, that's been pretty wild. Wow. Now, is there an effort to um, by UTLA to con- to connect some of their demands with the the funds that are being put forward towards the Olympics? No, there haven't been, um, and that's something I don't know. Maybe if there will be in the future, um, that's a, a good question. But something that like you know we've been pointing out since the beginning is we get from journalists, from elected leaders, um, basically this, this line about like, oh, well, you know, these games will be profitable and then we can use the funds to, to direct towards other things. And I honestly, in many of those situations, can't tell if people are, are lying, um, or if this is kind of one of those, like, you know, brown M&Ms in the rider types of deals where it's, it's sort of tell that they haven't read the the uh, host city contract because the host city contract specifies that the money has to go to youth sports. So the money can't, it like by contract, by the contract that 
our mayor and the you know uh, president of our city council signed any and I want to caveat that by saying it's like it's so unlikely that there will be any profit or that it will be meaningful in any way um should in the off chance that the 2028 games are profitable um that contract stipulates that that money cannot go to housing it cannot go to education it can't go to other things that are you know that like actually really shape the course of that are the children in LA desperately need, you know, it can't go to any of those things. It has to go to this. I mean, it has to go to youth sports according to the contract. And as we know, that means it goes to this private foundation, which, you know, I don't even want to know how much money they spent um, throwing their like scab benefit at the Marriott that costs like $300 to attend. Well, Again, really important work. Thank you so much for doing it. Um, we'll stay connected with you to get any um, updates of what's taking place. Um, we, we do ask this of every guest. As you're doing this work, what kind of music are you listening to? What, what's, your, what's your tunes these days, Anne? Oh, man, what are my tunes these days? That's a great question. I um, <laughs> uh, Man, I wish I had Molly and Johnny here because they're... Um, they're the music they're- folk. They're the I I love music too, but I would say my I'm trying to look at what I've been listening to recently, uh, and I've been listening to a lot of classical music. The thing that's open on my Spotify now, the last thing I was listening to was Anton Webern. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you know what I recommend? Yeah. That I've been listening to is, is it the Drive soundtrack. <gasps> Ooh. Okay. That's I'm going to do that. Right on Spotify. It's, um, especially if you have a little bit of an 80s Jones in your pop cultural lexicon, it mm-hmm. it, it, it will drive you. Okay. That's Pardon awesome. The, well, I didn't even mean to do that. <laughs> um, either way, it's fantastic. Okay. I will, I will check that out. Thank yes. You. I always appreciate uh, recommendations. Oh, yeah. This will be good. And you don't even have to think about Ryan Gosling smashing somebody's face in. The music actually elevates above that. <laughs> awesome. Um, oh, the other thing I listened to recently was uh, Attilio Mineo, the Man in Space recording. That's also fun. Attilio Mineo. Yeah. My producer's like nodding his head like, yeah, Attilio yeah. Mineo. Yeah. So good to go. And thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, you too. All right, talk to you soon. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important. And the nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about solidarity in tough times. Okay, look, when when my grandfather told me stories about the Holocaust, it was never with the message of, it could never happen here. 
Instead, with the grimace of a scarred cynic, his message was more, it will happen here. In his mind, a, quote, war on the Jews was not a relic from the past, but a historical inevitability. He cared little for other communities in harm's way. His view of the world was tribal. You watched it from your bunker, and at most, you shuddered. I found myself wondering today what my grandfather would make of this moment. Now that Jews have seen their blood spilled because there is a sector of this country that's been driven to violence by racism, white supremacy, and conspiracy theories, legitimized by a cable news network and their bigoted carnival barker of a president. We have before us a fascist movement and an armed backlash aimed at black and brown people, Jews, Muslims, women, the LGBTQ community, the media, and also aimed at the left. It's still small. It still can be defeated. But in our militarized, armed-to-the-teeth society, it doesn't take masses of hate merchants to terrify the majority, to send us into our homes and praying in futile fashion that our votes alone will be enough to turn back this tide. You don't need to be a fortune teller to anticipate what might come next. Violence at polling stations, death at the Mexican border, and more lone bombers who see Trump as the big man who makes them feel less small. In one week, two black grandparents, 69-year-old Maurice Stollard and 67-year-old Vicki Jones, were killed in a racist attack at a Kroger in Kentucky. The Tree of Life synagogue was subject to a massacre. Bombs were sent to the targets of Trump's hateful rhetoric. More violence is being promised against the quote-unquote caravan of immigrants seeking asylum at our border. And this administration has attacked the trans community because of a desire for votes and an instinct for cruelty. This isn't a war on any individual group. They're attacking all of us in a manner to make us feel as atomized and fearful as the white-knuckled Fox News viewer searching for demons under our beds. My grandfather rejected concepts like militant solidarity, but now there is simply no other alternative. I'm not talking about vigils and calls for understanding by candlelight, as comforting and valuable as it can be to get out of our homes and into the streets. But we need loud rallies against racism. We need speakouts for immigrants. We need to say that trans rights are human rights. We need public meetings about what fascism is and how to fight it. We need to provide security and ensure safe spaces for groups that are attempting to come together. We need with masses of numbers to physically confront these fascists when they come to our towns. I'm not talking about us having our own small bands of street fighters against their brass-knuckled Civil War reenactors, but masses of us occupying their spaces and preventing them from gathering, organizing, and to put it bluntly, killing. My grandfather was both right and wrong. He was right when he told me that in the future this country was going to be a dystopic place with people at each other's throats, a place where fascism, racism, and anti-Semitism would find easy root. He was wrong, however, to say that the only alternative is to hunker down, huddle with your tribe, and hope for a savior either here on earth or from the heavens. The answer lies in our organizing in precisely the opposite manner. It's not the case that your community could be next. Next has already arrived. Every community is already under attack. The president is a fascist horticulturalist planting the seeds of violence across the country. He must be stopped. His shock troops must be stopped. And we, at least for now, are many and they are few. But that dynamic will not last. I've never been more convinced that solidarity is the only way to win because I don't see another alternative other than losing. And if we lose, we lose everything. 
We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it, but we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up. And I have no sit-your-ass-down awards. There's just too much to discuss. The Just Stand Up Award goes to the University of Maryland, which has been a case study in the last week in the process where injustice inevitably produces resistance, and resistance can ricochet in all kinds of unexpected directions. As we've covered on this podcast... This all started, of course, with the horrific death by heat stroke last summer of 19-year-old football player Jordan McNair. Now, I want to tell a little bit of the narrative in case folks are hearing about this for the first time. UMD, the school, at first did nothing, with no one taking responsibility for Jordan McNair's death. Then the school suspended head coach DJ Durkin pending an investigation, but only after ESPN published an explosive report about the toxic bullying culture that led to McNair's death. Finally, after months of investigations and reports, the Board of Regents gobsmackingly decided to reinstate Durkin. Uproar immediately exploded on the team, in the media, and on campus. And within 24 hours, the Board of Regents backtracked and Durkin was gone. The backlash was so severe that the head of the Board of Regents, James Brady, resigned as well. It was an absolute whirlwind of change in a matter of days. Then, it accelerated even further. On Thursday, hundreds of students came together to rally for justice for Jordan. The event was originally called by the normally pretty quiet Student Government Association, and it was called before Durkin had been dismissed. I think they almost certainly would have canceled it following his dismissal, but that option was just not on the table. There was too much anger, too much disgust, and too much steam to be contained. But the SGA tried. At the rally itself, they argued for everyone to pack the football stadium this weekend as a tribute to Jordan McNair. They were even handing out free tickets. To an angry student body, they were prescribing school spirit. But a large section of students were not having it. Still outraged over the handling of Jordan's death, they instead began to chant, Black Lives Matter, Where's the Justice, and Boycott, as in Boycott the football team whose practice, in the words of one student, has led the school to becoming a crime scene, the setting of an unprosecuted negligent homicide. Then the rally split in two between the SGA establishment and students who were not ready to say everything was all of a sudden peachy keen in College Park. Within hours, 26 student groups rapidly came together in an effort to push the Justice for Jordan movement forward to ensure that such a decision could never happen again. If people want to see their statement, it's on my Twitter feed and I have it posted up at The Nation magazine. But it's a really brilliant statement. They call for institutional, democratic, and transparent change on campus and an entire reworking in how the Board of Regents operates. They're actually holding a rally Um, probably later in the day that you're listening to this very podcast, to further put forward their positions. It's a bold statement, 
but fortune favors the bold, especially at this moment in time. And I think what's happening at UMD is a model of students not relying on just the ballot box or resigning to passivity and in the face of injustice, but also taking action. And now some other Just Stand Up awards. Let me throw out. The rest won't be that long, I promise. I just had to give shout-outs to other people here. First is the Kentucky basketball players Rex Chapman and Mike Pratt for standing up against racial oppression. The two former basketball players took to Twitter to issue an ultimatum demanding that their Hall of Fame plaques be removed from Louisville's Freedom Hall after KKK and Nazi memorabilia were sold at a gun show inside that arena. And they got the Freedom Hall people to issue a statement against racism because they stood up. So good job, Rex Chapman and Mike Pratt. Also, just stand up to the union of the WNBA for opting out of their CBA, that's their collective bargaining agreement, to fight for higher wages and, most importantly, getting the league to open their books. We should have more on this story next week as I'm trying to land an interview with a WNBA player who I am guessing you will have heard of, and I'll just leave it at that. Also, Just Stand Up Award, even though I wish I had more details, but the viral picture of the San Francisco 49er cheerleader who took a knee on Thursday Night Football. Like I said, I have no idea why she took that knee. Maybe by the time you listen to this, people will know. But the mere fact that it projected the protest back out into the atmosphere is something I just want to give a lot of love to. Lastly, just very quick, uh, Kaepernick watch. People might know that uh, Kaepernick and his folks did another Know Your Rights camp for the youth in Miami, and I just hope there's going to be more of those soon. They're incredibly useful, helpful, and uh, beautiful events that are held for young people at different cities around this country. Here's hoping there are more to come, but just want to give that some solidarity and support. Well, thanks to everybody for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you to everybody who's been writing reviews and leaving ratings at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Uh, Thank you so much to my producer. Thank you so much to everybody out there in podcast land. Uh, If you want to contact me, Dave Zirin, with a Just Stand Up or Just Sit Down award, you always can at edgesports at gmail.com. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 